The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living right here on Voice America, America's Voice. We have a great guest for you today. My guest is Milo Shapiro, who after 15 years in information technology took his 10-year passion for improvisation into business, using improvisation for team building and to improve communication skills. And he brings his work around the country to many organizations. As a professional motivational speaker, he has honed his knowledge in platform skills, and that's really what he talks about, and he helps individuals organize and optimize their material, become more vibrant when they speak. He's the author of Public Speaking, Get A's, Not Z's, and The Worst Days Make the Best Stories. That's cool. Hi, well, hi Milo. Hi there, Pat. Patricia, sorry. <laughs> I oh, make everything call me Patricia. So you know what? Uh, I prefer Patricia. I thought in one of your notes I saw Pat, so I tried to remember it that way. My fault. Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> it must have been a typo. But, but I really <laughs> Hi enjoy the titles of your books, Thank public you. speaking, and the, yeah, I mean, it's very, very clever. Thanks. You know, coming up with a title for a book is sometimes more work than writing the book. I had a couple of different titles that I was working with at different times, and uh, it was it was a challenge. Originally, the public speaking book was uh, public speaking without passing out, which I all thought was kind of, mm-hmm. thought was kind of fun and, and you know right to the point. And someone well, who read an early draft of the book one fear isn't that the number one fear is public speaking? It is, but someone who read a draft of the book said, you know what, your book is about so much more than getting over the fear. It's about the whole skill set, and you might lose the audience who isn't afraid. So uh, that's why I changed that title. It's it's. It always ranks number one, and second place is deaf. So that's how scary public speaking is to most people, yeah. Interesting. Um, what is it that you teach people? Do you teach them? How do you work with them? Do you have them give a talk in front of you when you critique it? How do you work with folks? Well, one of the things I try and get across to because you were asking about the fear factor, is there's kind of like two areas of fear. There's realistic fear, things that honestly could go wrong that we can prevent, and then there's that created fear that is going on in people's heads. So what I try and do is say to people right off the bat, let's let the second one take care of itself. If, if I was a, a swim instructor and I came to you and you were afraid to jump off that high board, I could spend a lot of time trying to help you relax, but if there's no water in the pool, then there's a reason to be scared. So like you said, when people come to me, we work on the skill sets. I help them get better at being a good speaker. And often the, the fear of getting up in front of the group just kind of goes away because they start to get excited about it. And there's a lot of variety of exercises that we do. But, yes, one of the things is I have them give, a, give their speech. It depends if they're coming to me because they want to generally get better or if they're coming to me because 
I have a speech three weeks from now and I've got to be good. Yeah. So it'll change the nature of the coaching based on what their goals are. I like your title, The Worst Days Make the Best Stories. Explain it. Yeah, that was that one to went under underwent a few changes along the way, but finally I realized that's what the book really came down to is that uh, it's wonderful when we can laugh at ourselves and uh, when we can laugh at others as long as they don't know about it. Sometimes that's kind of nice too. So most of the stories in the book are, are stories of things that either have gone wrong for me or people I knew who let me use the stories. And uh, there's a life lesson in every one of them. It's not just laughing at people falling down. It's what can we learn from this story so we don't make the same kinds of mistakes. Sort of like a chicken soup for the soul with a lot more humor in it. Yeah, and that goes along with um, one of the speeches you give, we got to fail to succeed. Yeah, yeah. That's such an important concept, and it's amazing to me how many people really don't have any place in their life for failure. If I can't succeed, I don't try. And what a shame, because they miss out on the joy of the process of learning, or, you know, sometimes just getting a B is, is really okay because it means you showed up, you tried things, and maybe it'll take you to the next thing you want to do. But when you speak to groups where people say to me, you know, in the comments afterwards when they fill out the evaluations, I, I never really thought of things that way. I only go in if I know I'm going to succeed. What a limiting way to spend your life. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people like to fail. I agree there. Oh. But as you said, it's part of the process. Mm -hmm. And that's what's wonderful about improv is we don't go into improv with the intention of succeeding every time. We go in with the attitude that we're going to have a great time, and if 80% of the material works, hey, 20% had to fail in order to do really good jobs. There was another troupe in town when I was performing improv locally that their attitude was, nothing can fail. We're going to drill these games until everything is successful. And I found that they were 100% successful, but kind of in a mediocre way. There wasn't any life to it. The troupe I belonged to said 80% is fine, and that 80% had brilliant moments in it because... We push things to the edge, and when you do that, sometimes you're going to fail. It's all about the attitude that it's not necessarily a problem that something doesn't work. So what are some do's and don'ts for public speakers? Uh, one of the big things is you need to <coughs> capture your audience's attention right away. You know how they say you're, you only get one chance to make a first impression, and that yeah. first moment when you're shaking hands with somebody, they're going to pretty much decide how they feel about you in the first 10 seconds. Same thing with being a speaker. You're shaking hands with 300 people all at once with your first sentence or two. So use it for something more powerful than thanking them for being there and appreciating their time. I had one client who wanted to use almost 40 seconds on that. I said, your audience is asleep by then. Catch them with something really interesting and you know, that will grab their attention and then let it go on from there to really get into the things you, you want to say. Give us an example of an attention grabber that you started to talk with. I always like to start with a story. I think it's either a story or a fact that's going to get them thinking. Uh, a great example, I had a client who was an architect, and he, again, wanted to, like many clients, wanted to thank the audience. I said, what if you came out instead? Oh, the topic was the history of architecture. Not too small a topic, right? And he came out, and what I told him to say was this. What was the more, biggest step forward in creating the history of architecture? Building the pyramids or erecting the Empire State Building? Now, of course, that's a crazy question because they were so different, but each was the right development in its time. Boom, right? The audience was like, wow, great question. I never would have thought of it that way. They were on the edge of their seat for the rest of the program. We found an excuse for them to thank the audience later on, but at least he had their attention. For me, I like to tell personal stories. So I often open something about someone in my family because everyone can relate to family stories. 
but I always know that I'm going to be getting to the point that I want to make about my grandfather or about my father so that I don't feel like I'm wasting anybody's time. The audience, some of the audience will just be caught up in the story. Some of the audience will be thinking the whole time, where is he going, where is he going? It doesn't matter which they are, so long as I know that eventually I'm going to make a point that leads me into what I'm there to talk about that day. Yeah, and I think my question to you is, don't you need to know who your audience is in terms of the type of stories you tell, the ethnicity, the diversity, the complexity of the audience? If, uh, yes, to some degree, and no to another degree. If it's a general enough story, for instance, a story about my grandfather, I can pretty much get away with that with anybody. But you're right, there have been a couple of times that I have made some mistakes telling a story making some assumptions. I was speaking to the American Society of Training and Development. I mean, the first word in there was American, and I just missed that it was the International Conference of the American Society of Training and Development. And one of my stories, it wasn't a lead-off story, but one of my stories dealt a lot with the, the women's rights movement, and I made reference to someone that we all know from Ms. Magazine. I'm thinking that everybody is going to know her name, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, that, that was very interesting, but who is that woman you kept talking about, that Gloria Steinem? I don't know who she is. Mm. And I was like, oh, right, my mistake, to American a reference. Another time I mentioned Marlo Thomas, same thing. Someone came up to me and said, who's Marlo Thomas? I just thought he wasn't placing the name. I said, you know, that girl. He said, what girl? And I yeah. realized he didn't even know there was a TV show called That Girl, let alone that Marlo Thomas was in it. So age is a great place to accidentally alienate some of your audience. So Milo, are we entertaining or are we educating when we speak, or both? Uh, if you're educating, if there's a need to do that, you should always be entertaining. There was a, a running joke in the National Speakers Association, do I need to be funny? And the answer is only if you want to get paid. The fact is that we will lose our audiences if we don't do things to make our programs a little more entertaining. I'm not saying they should be leaving like a Robin Williams stand-up comedy routine, but they should be engaged in what you're speak, uh, saying. They should be finding you interesting to listen to. It should be the Patricia show rather than a speech by Patricia, if at all possible. Mm. And there's a lot of things you can do to bring that out. Again, it's not about telling jokes. Telling jokes, they better, it better be a darn good joke that really makes a point to tell a joke. To be bringing in stories from your lives and the people you know, and even the business world, and I'll tell story. There's a story I tell about Thomas Edison, going back quite a ways. But I play Thomas Edison as I tell the story, and I play the reporter who's talking to him, and I get to the point. And you're watching for about a minute, a little mini play about Thomas Edison, and then I get to the point that I want to make that Thomas Edison had an amazing attitude toward failure, that he didn't see any of the things that didn't work as failures. He saw everything as a learning lesson to get him where he needed to get. Which is why he got where he needed to be. Absolutely. If he had tried something once and said that didn't work and criticized himself and come down on himself for being a failure and everything else, uh, well, we might be sitting in the dark right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Talk about your website and the title of your website and exactly what it means, improvventures.com. Uh, improvventures was the fact that I was coming out of a background in business. I had been an IT programmer for many years but had also been – studying improvisation. And when I decided that I wanted to make a leap out of the, the safe day-to-day -day world of information technology, I wanted to do something from my passion, which was improvisation. So when I started the business, I knew I didn't know exactly everything I would do with improv, but I knew I was going to be doing a lot of ventures related to improv. 
originally it was going to be Improv Visions, but somebody else suggested Improv Ventures because of what I was doing with it. I said I'd like that way better. And it, I started with the team-building course, and eventually that spread into other things. But the team-building course was just the first step in saying, how can we apply improv to business? Then started, people started saying to me, well, this is really powerful stuff. You've got to start working with groups bigger than 15 and 20, but not necessarily in team-building. That led to me getting involved with the National Speakers Association and developing this keynote, we got to fail to succeed. And so now I can deal with 300 people in the audience, and I'm still leading them in games, but they're just turning to the person next to them. So if it's 300, that's 150 pairs doing mm-hmm. improv. And then I can run around the audience and run back and say, these are the kinds of things I'm seeing going on. Is this happening in your pair? And yeah, uh, if I get lucky, I get some outgoing people. I can bring a few up onto the stage and show just how quickly we went from knowing nothing about improv to these two random people that I just pulled up here completely entertaining you because they had a good attitude and they took a chance. So if you're giving a keynote motivational talk, Milo, do you think you should involve the audience or does it depend? Most of the time I think you should. If you truly are just trying to get facts and data across to them, then you may not have the opportunity, but usually you can find some playful way to do it, even if it's as simple as there's one part I do a section, I have a separate speech that I do about public speaking, how to be a better speaker. And there's one part where I talk about how to handle Q&A. Well, I feel like I've been talking for a long time by then. So what I do is I have these little uh, laminated cards that ask me six questions, and I show how I handle each of them. I could just throw them up in PowerPoint and ask myself the question, but instead at that point I give the six cards to people toward the front, and I let them ask me the questions. And they don't have to think, they're just reading the card. But immediately I'm a little more involved with them. I think that wakes up the audience a little bit, especially since there's a feeling that, wait, 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 if you went out to those six people, what if I'm next? Uh, Another thing I do is I like fill-in handouts. Just the very fact of saying that's the answer to number six. And then people have to fill in something. Some people don't like having to write, and they don't have to, but at least for the other people, they always know where I am in the program, and it involves them to some degree. And I like to, to do call-outs. Give me an example of such and such. Great. And that gives them a chance to yell something out here and there. How do you use these skills as a corporate team builder? What are some of the things you do in that setting, Milo? Sure. That's, that's, that's where it all started. Um, out of the hundreds of improv games that I know, that are some of which are simply fun and no more, I've looked for ones that focus on listening skills, building on each other's ideas, nonverbal communication, so that while we're playing the games, afterwards people will say things to me like, you know what, that's what happens in our staff meeting. How do we deal with that with what happened in that last game? Or I have a client who pulls that nonsense on me. It's not so funny then. What do you do? So we get to start processing the thoughts around what happened in the games. The other thing that's kind of nice is improv. It's like a magnifying glass for people's communication issues. And if they can't get through the game, it's usually a good reflection on where they have trouble communicating elsewhere. Well, I have the opportunity, I'll just make up a person, let's say a woman named Jamie. I'm, playing, I'm watching Jamie and Dave play a game, and I can go over, wait, 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 Jamie. And that last part, you built on the last idea you had, not on what Dave said. Listen to what he said again, and this time, build on what Dave said. Well, I'm just helping her get through the game. She's not offended, but over in the corner, the supervisor is giving me the thumbs up, like, yes, that's what she does all the time, thank you. And I've had a lot of people themselves, not just the supervisors, say to me, you know, I really notice some things about what I do, about when I step up as a leader or when I don't listen and I always feel like I have to be the leader. So the games bring out a lot about how we work with other people. Mm-hmm. And do you find it loosens up people, too, 
Oh. In a way that, you know, they may not have known that person in that setting before. Yeah. They see a person differently after the game. Sure. We don't give people a lot of opportunity to play in the real world. And it's kind of a shame. We start in kindergarten or before with the idea that the way we learn is through play and experience. And somehow we think we're supposed to outgrow that when really that's, that's how the human mind works. So when we go to that place, we start connecting with others. There's some games we do with a, something called gibberish, which is speaking in a fake foreign language. And first we spend a few minutes learning how to do it. Whatever it is to make them just sound like they're speaking. Well, I was working with a, a group that had some international people. It was an IT group. And this one woman who was so quiet through most of the games, participating, keeping a smile on, but not, not saying a whole lot. And she was English second language. All of a sudden, when we switched to the gibberish games, she completely came out of her shell because it was the first time she was on an equal par with all of her American-born co-workers for whom English was effortless. And people kept saying, is that sun? I'm like, that is sun in her head, how bright and how creative she is all the time. And then you see through that, that through the filter of her trying to find the words in English. You need to know this is who this person is that you've got all the time. If you could speak Chinese, she would be out of her shell completely. So it really gave them an insight into who she was. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting, really. So when you, um, what I find so interesting is that you were in IT, right? Very so different, you were huh? in IT for a long time, which is very, very left brain, being in information technology. How did you translate? Did you always kind of have a right brain creative side? Yeah, I was always the oddest fit at IT. Uh, everybody else would have data charts all over their cubicles, and I would have uh, posters of the Peanuts characters and, and pictures that I had drawn and things like that. I was definitely out of place there, and yet very successful there because my, my clients loved my work and it was accurate. What I brought to the table, maybe I wasn't the best programmer they had. There were probably some people who were technically more savvy. But my creativity was what I commented on all the time. I would say to the clients, you know, I hear what you're asking me for. What about this? Wouldn't this actually get your work done even faster if we could do this? And they'd say, I hadn't even thought about having one place on the screen where we could just type a character and it would fill in all the other characters for us. So my creativity, that right brain side, had its place even in the IT world. But that being said, it wasn't very satisfying. It's easier for me to satisfy my left brain stuff now out in the right brain world than it was for me to satisfy my right brain stuff in the day-to-day COBOL, CICS, DB2 programmer, the job that I had. Let's talk about um, the talks that you give. You're a keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. You do team provising, which is team building and communication, and also public speaking coaching, one-on-one coaching to help people be more polished and powerful. What are some tips you have for people in terms of just that, you know, getting rid of the ums and the ahs and eye contact? What are some of the tips there? The ums and the ahs, funny you should bring that one up. That's one of the harder ones, to be honest. So I say to people, let's put that off to later because if you're using interesting words, if you're using your vocal variety effectively, if you're using your body in interesting ways, people will forgive the ums a little bit more. They also start to go away because a lot of the ums is in not knowing what you want to say or in not using your voice effectively. And if you're focused on good vocal variety, the ums do start to go away on their own. Then later in the process, we can revisit that. But I think the vocal variety is really a bigger place for people to, to get a 
attention. Because if you have to listen to someone talking like this for more than half an hour, it's not any question of whether they say um or not. It's a question of the fact that they're not interesting. So have you ever been in Toastmasters or attended a Toastmaster meeting along the way? I'm just curious, Patricia. Yes. And, there, you, you're probably familiar with the phrase of vocal variety and hearing people say you should use more, you should, that section had good vocal variety. But what I found was that people were leaving the room in Toastmaster meetings not knowing quite what to do. They just knew they were doing something wrong. So I developed something called the seven variants of vocal variety. And I sit down with my client and explain these seven things you can do with your voice. And there's more, but seven's enough. And, when and what, they, are they? what are they, Milo? The, let's go through the seven. The, seven. the first one is volume. It sounds, sounds kind of simple, but a lot of people don't even think there are times you can just get louder with your voice, and there's times to back off and be quieter. There's pitch, which is the one people think of most, which is to go higher with your voice once in a while or come down lower when you want to make a more significant point. Uh, and most women tend to go from high to medium, high to medium. Most men tend to go medium to low, medium to low. So it's about expanding that range. Not always true, but that tends to be the pattern. Then there's speed. Again, you don't want to be talking faster than the audience can pick up on it, but sometimes you want to slow down just to let something sink in. And then parenthetically, you might want to say something quicker before going back. So speed is another area you can vary. Break points. This is huge. People, a great way to get rid of those ums is to plan where you're going to stop and where you're going to breathe. So if I say to you, there is nothing more important in speaking than using your voice effectively. Notice I didn't break point in the end of the sentence, which is most people's instinct. It's to find a place to leave a little bit of a hanging so people go, what? What is it going to be? I'm, I'm waiting to find out. So finding those places to stick break points. Yeah, and those are powerful. I use those a lot in my speaking. When you pause, people really, people are uncomfortable with pauses, so they're really waiting for what you're going to say next. And it feels eternal when you're doing it, but it's not so bad on the other end. If you listen to it, I'm sure you have, and that's why you've realized over time that it is effective, that it feels longer when you're doing it than it does in your audience. One second is, is actually a nice long time to leave, but not too long. So that's break points. Then comes holdings. Holdings is letting a sound carry on longer because it can be really nice once in a while to hold something just a little bit longer, like mm -hmm. I just did with really and little. It's usually the vowels, but sometimes a consonant works. Tony the Tiger made a whole career out of holding an R, and it gave him an effect. That's right. That's right. The last right. two... All right, I just want to tell the audience about you, Milo, my terrific guest, who is um, not only a public speaker, but a coach. He's a keynote speaker with motivation. He developed team provising, which is team building and communication through improv, and he's a public speaking coach. And his two books are public speaking, Get A's, Not Z's, and also The Worst Days, Make the Best Stories and Other Life Lessons. And he's a wonderful motivational speaker. Where are you located, Milo? I'm based in San Diego. Okay, and the business so, takes me all over the country, but it's always nice when I get the call from somewhere else in the country and it said, they say, oh, we're having a convention in San Diego, and that makes things so much easier. Do you, um, do you do public coaching over the phone or mostly in person? It's mostly uh, in person, but between phone, Skype, and people sending me video, I do work with people elsewhere in the country. And sometimes those videos can be extremely effective to see what was it like you know, when, when they tried to do it themselves. Yeah, which really is helpful because then you get to critique what they're doing. Exactly. But Skype is great, too, because then I can just see them on the spot, and it doesn't really matter quite where they are. Mm, which is great. All right, we have a couple minutes left, so tell people how they can find you. 
the best way is to go to one of the two websites. If you are looking for the team building with improv or any of my motivational speeches, improvventures.com, which is spelled like the word improv and the word ventures slammed together with one V, improvventures.com. And if you're interested in any of my materials, either the books or contacting me about public speaking, my website for that is publicdynamics.com. All right, and if you write to Milo and tell him you heard it on the show, he'll write you right back. Absolutely. Right, Michael? <laughs> give you an answer if you ask him a question about public speaking. All right. Well, just give us a closing message uh, in terms of if people get one thing out of this interview today, what would you like them to get? Uh, let's go with the public speaking side. A lot of people worry about, you know, how am I doing and am I looking good and the rest of that, or are they liking me? Am I meeting their needs? There's only so much you can do to meet their needs. You don't know these people. And it's not about you. That's all ego. Let yourself out of it. Just focus on serving the message to the best of your ability. Because when you serve the message, you're serving them as well as you possibly can. Thank you so much, Milo, for being oh, on the program. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and again, uh, your website for people. Is improvventures.com or publicdynamics.com. All right, stay on the line for us. Okay, folks, um, that definitely wraps up our segment today for Patricia Raskin Positive Living with our terrific guest, Milo Shapiro. And if you want to know how to be a better public speaker, definitely contact Milo, and you can log on to improvventures.com. All right, hope you have a wonderful holiday, and remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin for Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Write to me, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Bye for now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.